we're never going to be large enough to matter. The only way we matter is by actually getting other people to copy what we're doing. Hopefully, they're going to copy us two, three years after we do something. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to a very special episode of the Smart Energy Voices podcast, marking the fifth anniversary of Smart Energy Decisions. When thinking about who I wanted as my guest to mark this special occasion, it didn't take too long to conclude that Jigger Shah, president and co-founder of Generate Capital, was the best choice, as reading his book, Creating Climate Wealth, in the summer of 2015, served as an important part of my inspiration to both develop and launch smart energy decisions. Jigger, welcome to our show, and thanks for being here with me today. It means an awful lot in spite of how busy you are and how many demands there are on your time. So thanks for being here, Jigger. Oh, my pleasure. Always happy to help. I think what you guys are doing is fantastic. Thank you. Jigger, let's start by having you give us a brief update on your current activities at Generate Capital and any other key current initiatives that you're working on. I I know you're involved in clean tech leaders and you were involved in clean energy for Biden. So tell us about what's occupying your time right now. Yeah, it's a good question. (laughs) So much is occupying my time right now. For me, we are at a very special moment right now. You know, with the new president that's come in and has made climate change one of his major pillars, and you've got all of the climate change solutions technologies that are finally ready for prime time, right? Not that they weren't ready before, but they are now at a cost point where you don't have to choose between deploying climate technologies and delivering the lowest cost of electricity or whatever service we're providing. And so we're ready to go from millions to billions to trillions, right? And so I think when I started my career, we were mostly in the millions category. And that was wonderful, right? $60 million fund or $100 million fund. Now we're firmly in the billions category, where it's $60, $70 billion a year of infrastructure getting built in the electricity sector alone. And we're now headed towards the trillions category, where we start doing a trillion dollars a year of climate solution deployment. The question becomes, like, what do you need to support that level of deployment? And the truth is, you need a lot. <laughs> you need <laughs> millions of people who are well-trained and in our industry. You need a whole bunch of mayors and county commissioners and governors who actually believe that this is a great economic development effort for their state or their city or county. You need technical assistance. You need people that can help folks who don't quite understand whether they're making a good decision or not and need independent advice. You need mentors, right? Like you need a lot of mentors because this is a hard slog. And then, you know, I think as we've increasingly learned in 2020, you need to have an intentional focus on bringing people who have not been allowed to participate in this wealth creation opportunity, a distinct pathway to be involved, right? So whether it's frontline communities or communities of color or folks who are poor, making sure that there are ladders 
for them to get into our industry is super important because it broadens the mandate that we have, which is what we need to be able to get to a trillion dollars a year of deployment. Yeah. So you're clearly spending a lot of time thinking about how that ultimate vision that you expressed in creating climate wealth is realized. And it's interesting, you're clearly layering on some of the issues that emerge as part of that process, like the social issues associated with the dynamic. The whole idea of going from millions to billions to trillions, Larry Fink was on CNBC this morning, and he referenced that we're going to need $50 trillion in clean energy investment globally to reach the net zero carbon goal by 2050. So this business has really mushroomed from when you first wrote about it in 2013. So Creating Climate Wealth had a big impact on me, as I stated earlier, and the book is seven or eight years old, but I reread it this weekend preparing for the interview. So many of the thoughts that you expressed in there are are timeless, and I want to revisit some of the key themes from the book, Jigger. Why did you write Creating Climate Wealth? Well, you know, it's one of those things where I had been on a mission and a vision and a, a path for a long time, right? I mean, when I was working at BP Solar, when I started Sun Edison, when I went to the Carbon War Room, and all of these ideas were gelling in my head, but they weren't coherent. And even I would say the book, which I'm very proud of, if I was to rewrite it again, there were some things I could have polished up in the book. But as someone who is as accomplished as you are, knows very well, it's one thing to mouth off on podcast or on a, a television show, etc. It's another thing to actually fill hundreds of pages in a book and actually tie all those ideas together. And I have to say that that experience of putting that whole thing together and making sure that all the ideas reinforced each other, making sure that that I was being clear to a broader audience. And for me, as you know from the book, I was really writing to a more introductory audience and not an expert mm-hmm. audience per se. So making sure the concepts were clear enough that folks who were new to this area could understand it and I wasn't using too much lingo and inside baseball was just, it was hard. <laughs> I mean, it was really hard. And the the discipline that it takes to do that, I think really makes you better and it makes your thinking clearer. And that has served me very well since the publishing of the book. Well, when you wrote it, I guess impact investing was the principal area of focus for uh, capital flowing into this market. Mainstream investing in clean energy really wasn't a factor when you wrote the book. And today you can't open up a newspaper or listen to a television news show without there being some reference to ESG. And ESG is now one of the fastest growing areas of finance. What do you think has changed in this relatively short period of time that things have gone from a niche investing opportunity to this very large mainstream opportunity? In the beginning of my book, I actually take a full assault on impact investing, as you know. Part of the reason I did that is because the definition of impact investing, as was defined by several major foundations at the time in 2013, was really making investments that deliberately sacrificed returns for impact, which I thought was the worst definition I have heard of impact investing in a very long time. And at the time, Gene Case was, you know, going around working on promoting impact investing. And she was saying, well, you know, one or two or 3% of your money should be invested in impact. At the time, I had already had 100% of my money, my net worth was in impact. And I had already sold 
Sun Edison. And I knew instinctively at the time that impact investing was not really about sacrificing returns. It was about making sure that you intentionally steered your money towards investments that made compelling market returns while having impact. I think that the ESG movement is a little bit different. The ESG movement is really more about risk. There's a good friend of mine, John Naiman, who started a company called Light Green Advisors back in 1999 or so. And he proved that if you invested in only the best companies, the best managed companies, the best monies on the ESG spectrum back in 2000, within the S&P 500. So you have 500 stocks in the S&P 500. If you only picked the 50, one in every single sector, in energy, telecom, et cetera, that was the best performer from uh, treating their people well, governance, environment well, that they actually outperformed the rest of their peers over that 20-year period from 2000 till today, substantially. So I learned from him early on, he and I became friends around 2001, 2002, so right around that time, that ESG was really more about determining whether people were good managers, right? Because a good manager actually believes being respectful of the environment, the social causes, and, and, and what happens in the communities that you serve, as well as you know having good governance and holding yourself accountable, led to better outcomes. And so to me, I think they're two separate concepts. I understand why people think they're on the same continuum, but I think they're two separate concepts. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like it's almost two sides of a coin where at one point impact investing was about investing in these areas to do good without regard to the return. Whereas now it's the the quest for superior returns is what's actually motivating the investments in these companies that are practicing superior management techniques. It's really been fascinating to watch. And I think it's one of the biggest drivers that's going to fuel continued growth in the clean energy economy. And we could probably talk for an hour just on this one topic. <laughs> uh, I did want to ask you, I know David Osmit from Walmart, Bob Valer from Staples is on our advisory board. So when you talk about Staples and Walmart and Whole Foods in the book as being some of the first companies you worked with on PPAs, I felt myself wanting to know more. What do you remember about those first PPAs that you did with Sun Edison? And do you recall any details around the story behind the very first one? Because that single business model innovation has just had a tremendous impact on adoption and deployment. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I talk about in the book is people should be dedicated to selling pain medication, not vitamin pills, right? Because pain medication is something that people really pay for right when they need it. Where vitamin pills, sometimes they buy it, sometimes they don't. It's not a great sell to say, this is a little bit better for you. So Whole Foods in particular, there was a gentleman who ran the Edgewise New Jersey store who had been looking to put solar on the roof for several years. And he could not get his CFO to agree to spend the money on it because frankly, it was the same cost as building a new store. And at the time, Whole Foods was, you know, like growing like crazy. And so when he found out about the PPA model, we signed a contract in four weeks because he was very motivated to sign one. He had been wanting to do this for two years and it was a big source of pain for him. And so we got it done in four weeks. And then I met Mark Buckley at Staples through the World Resources Institute's Green Market Initiative. 
And Mark said, this is a great idea. Let's figure it out. Let's go do it, right? And we signed those contracts similarly like four to five weeks later because they really wanted to do it. And then I met the folks at Ikea and they signed it right away. And so it was pretty fast how quickly we got those folks signed. Now, David Osmond's a little bit different. So he totally understood what we were doing. And at the time, Walmart was making big pronouncements about trying to get green and some of the other things. Remember, they were also under fire around labor practices and all sorts of things at the time. But it really, it wasn't a pain point for him. It was really more vitamin pills for him, right? He and his colleagues really wanted to do it because he just thought it was really cool. And so it wasn't until I showed him that if he didn't sign the contract within four weeks, that he was going to lose out on all the rebate money in the state of New Jersey, that we were able to get all those contracts signed in four weeks, right? Because we created a deadline, basically. But he had a hard time signing the contracts, not because he was against it, but his broader management team was like, why is this one of the first five priorities? Like, there's lots of other things we could do to signal that we care about the environment. Well, it's interesting because I, I recall in the book referencing that once they did that initial program and then decided they wanted to do more, it sounded like their point of view was, hey, Jigger, this is interesting if you could do it in several hundred stores, but we're only going to do it if you could really scale this to several thousand stores. Yeah, there was a British guy whose name escapes me that worked there, and he said exactly that. He was like, look, Jigger, Jigger, we only think about things in 50% of our fleet. If you can't put it on 50% of our stores, like, why are we talking? And I said, look, I do think you can get it on 50% of your stores. The problem I have is that like the industry has never worked at that scale before. So let's focus on New Jersey and California first. And as soon as we do that, we'll do more. And that's precisely what happened. I mean, Walmart has done solar on, pick a number, but probably something on the order of like a thousand stores now. Well, I, I suspect they definitely have the largest number of deployments. They may not be the largest total volume of power, but definitely the greatest number of deployments. So this notion of business model innovation being pain medication for an immediate need, the PPA models work very well. It's being emulated in other categories to help accelerate deployment. How do you think we're doing today overall with business model innovation? Are there any new pain points that maybe need a new innovation? Where do you think we're going with business model innovation and kind of what's needed to, to drive even further deployment of clean energy technology? Well, I have to say, I mean, part of the reason I wrote the book in 2003 was that I was frustrated from the carbon war room that not a lot of people were copying the business model innovation that we did at Sun Edison. And I'd say that even after I started Generate Capital with my two co-founders, we were still kind of shocked that like we had to really help people pursue business model innovation. It was not a natural place for people, whether it's electric vehicles as a service where you're selling electric vehicles by the mile, or whether it's anaerobic digesters or fuel cells, or I mean, a lot of these sectors have been in places where their technology has been fairly mature for a long time. But the concept of using project finance and as a service contracts is really difficult. I mean, even in biofuels, I'd say, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where I have been quite shocked at how difficult it has been for folks to just read my book or the hundreds of other books that are out there at this point and actually just do it on their own. You know, we've had to deliberately intervene and really mentor people to get their technologies into an as-a-service format. It was not straightforward. Yeah. It's interesting to see how in sector by sector, it becomes clear that 
kind of CapEx, especially in this environment now after COVID, CapEx budgets have been decimated. You've got to have an OpEx model and as a service model if you expect to get new technologies deployed. In the book, Jigger, one of the things you reference is that kind of market timing is everything. And I'm curious, what do you think the time is right for today? If you had to identify two promising near-term technologies that are ready to scale from a deployment standpoint, what do you think of in that context? Well, green hydrogen is clearly one area. I mean, and when you think about the market timing, and we had predicted this sort of two and a half years ago at Generate, you have renewable energy that's being curtailed in larger numbers, Mm -hmm. right? They curtailed a terawatt hour of solar power mostly in California last year. You have electrolyzer technology that's fully mature and has been fully mature for decades that had a lot of new R&D investment put into it in the early 2000s that has resulted in a cost curve that we now can see that over 10 years, they're going to get to a pretty cost-effective point. And you have this enormous growth of hydrogen utilization at warehouses by Walmart and Amazon with plug power, right? So you now have a built-in demand for that green hydrogen at a price point that is higher than what the refineries use it at, right? So people are paying a premium for hydrogen. And so we saw those trend lines coming together, and we worked pretty closely with Sanjay Shretha over at Plug Power. And in the investor day at the end of 2019, we rolled this thing out to all the Plug Power shareholders, and they finally put two and two together. The Plug Power shareholders for a long time were saying, well, we're just fuel cells. We're not part of the decarbonization movement. We're just investing in a technology. And we're like, no, you're part of the decarbonization movement. Here's how we're putting all the pieces together. And a lot of folks said, what? This is a decarbonization stock? And, you know, the stock market has been to the moon ever since, right? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, yeah, it really right? Has. Because because once they realized it was part of this macro broader trend, they were like, well, duh, now the growth is absolutely locked in. Right? We see how this is actually part of these companies' decarbonization strategies, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I'm surprised that you mentioned green green hydrogen, but I'm glad you did because it's such an interesting topic, and it has so many facets to it. So the Plug Power application is interesting. There was the investor call with Plug Power was just this morning, which I got to listen to for a little while before we talk. And Plug Power announced today they're going to ratchet up their 2024 revenue forecast by 40% to $1.7 billion. And they've now established these international partnerships in Asia with SK and in Europe with Renault. But I still think of Plug Power as a fairly narrow application around their forklift technology. I mean, for green hydrogen to really be kind of at scale with proper distribution and transmission, what what has to happen? Well, let me say what you just said back to you using solar. Okay. Right? So in 2003, when I worked at BP Solar, right, and I was leaving that year to start Sun Edison, our main business was either feed-in tariff markets, right, in Germany and places like Mm -hmm. that. Or there were telecom towers. Half the entire market in 2003 was still off-grid solar. The solar panel was the same in all these markets, right? So we had a solar panel, and it was mostly used for off-grid markets. So what do you think about that off-grid solar panel? The solar panel itself is not off-grid in the same way that the 20-kilowatt fuel cell block that Plug Power makes is not a forklift. It just happens to be the perfect size for a forklift. So that's what they used it for. 
But what Plug Power really is, is a group that has figured out how to make fuel cells at a cheaper and cheaper price, right? Because they're a mass manufacturing company now, right? They are able to mass manufacture these, these 20 kilowatt fuel cells and the associated equipment to the point where their costs are coming down faster than the costs of five megawatt fuel cells that are made by other people. And now they said, well, now that we've got the costs down, what else can you use them for? Well, you can use them to back up telecom towers. You can use them as range extenders for Renault. You can use them for lots of applications, right? And so plug power is just getting started because that they realize is once their cost structure has come down, they now have the ability to sell hundreds of thousands of these units into lots of applications, right? In the same way that we did that with solar. At the time in 2003, no one thought you could build a 1,000 megawatt solar farm. Well, Jigger, that's interesting. So costs, costs will come down, the number of applications will multiply, and the business will grow exponentially. One, one of the applications for green hydrogen that we have an interest in at Smart Energy Decisions relates to renewable thermal energy. As more industrials make carbon emission reduction commitments and they look at their energy loads, the majority of their energy loads are from heat-related activities and not necessarily from electricity. So they've got to figure out a way to get off of natural gas onto a cleaner power source. Do you see hydrogen playing into that mix as a fuel source, or do you think there'll be other technologies that will be better suited to address industrials' need for renewable thermal energy? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say that we have to be a little bit careful about where we think this thing is going. Right now, Plug Power has figured out a niche application by which it can actually make a hydrogen fuel cells pencil in ways that are just shockingly cost effective for their clients. And so, and then that allows them to build a lot of green hydrogen facilities to tap into that niche application, right? Remember, the global hydrogen business is 100 and $20 billion a year, right? And Plug Power is talking about being one-tenth of one percent of that volume. When I say niche, I mean really niche. The question now becomes, as they grow their applications, can they bring the cost of green hydrogen down? And I think the answer is absolutely yes, right? I mean, I think it will follow the learning curve theory just like every other technology has followed the learning curve theory. And then the question becomes, as the cost of hydrogen comes down from green hydrogen sources, Will it be allowed to be used in these sort of industrial applications? And I think the answer is yes, but we're probably 15 years away from that. It's not something that's going to happen next week. All right. Interesting. So green hydrogen related to fuel cells near term, green hydrogen related to industrial renewable thermal longer term. I think that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing at Generate Capital, because you don't talk much about that. And I'm fascinated by what the company's up to. And I really wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about it. What's it like, Jigger, to have been a pioneer in sustainable finance in 2014 and now see virtually every major financial player try to jump into the space? It's validating. The thing about what we do, whether it's the power purchase agreement fund I did with Goldman Sachs in 2005, or whether it's Generate Capital now, is that we're never going to be large enough to matter. The only way we matter is by actually getting other people to copy what we're doing. 
hopefully like they're going to copy us two or three years after we do something so that we make a lot of the money before they copy us. But at the end of the day, right? Like we want there to be a trillion dollars chasing technologies and deployment in this space. And generate capital isn't going to do a trillion dollars by itself. I think it's a feature, not a bug that we want a bunch of people to actually copy what we're doing. Now we've been relatively quiet about what we're doing because we frankly were trying to figure it out ourselves, right? Like we had a hypothesis, we put it out there. It actually has worked splendidly well. So that's great. And now we're talking about it a lot more in the Wall Street Journal and other places. But for a long time, we were being very careful because we like to prove our hypothesis. We don't like to brag about things that we're going to do in the future. Okay. That makes sense. Well, that's a that's a mindset of abundance that I think will serve Generate Capital extremely well. When you launched Generate Capital, it was originally positioned as a specialty finance company. And on the website today, it's positioned as an infrastructure, as a sustainable infrastructure platform. What's changed and what's evolved and is what's the meaning behind that transition from being a specialty finance company to a sustainable infrastructure platform? No, it's a good question, right? When we started the company, we had $55 million of capital, right? So it wasn't a billion dollars of capital. And so by definition, you were a specialty finance company, right? Because you were doing special finance. Today, we have 100 employees, right? We have most of those people in asset management, right? They're actually working on assets that we already own that are on our balance sheet, and they're collecting money from customers. They're servicing those assets, right? They're actually managing contractors who service those assets, right? By definition, once you own infrastructure and you take full responsibility for operating it, you become an infrastructure (laughs) company. We're not just an investor. An investor basically says, everything's ones and zeros. We've wrote a big check. We are depending on that other group to do their job. And then, you know, that other group, if they succeed, great. If they fail, then we didn't make as much money as we thought, right? But in our case, we succeed or fail based on our efforts. If an asset is underperforming, we actually have to step in and hire 10 more people and go out and fix it. There isn't someone else for us to go to, right? I mean, we certainly can evaluate other subcontractors and hire another subcontractor, but if that still doesn't work, we have the responsibility to solve the problems. And that that's the difference between just an investor and an infrastructure platform. Interesting. You know, you see these new entities taking shape. You've got Macquarie partnering with Siemens. You've got Carlisle partnering with Schneider, trying to leverage both the finance and the infrastructure and the project deployment piece. You you are clearly evolving to where the actual asset management is going to become a more and more important or meaningful part of what you do is the amount of capital that you deploy increases. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. Speaking of capital, so you raised, Generate raised a billion dollar fund last year. Can you give us a sense for how, how much capital you currently have deployed and how does that break down by sector? I don't know what, if there are any limitations to the amount of detail you're able to get into on this, but I'm curious as to the total funds that at work and kind of how they're distributed across uh, categories. Yeah, it's a good question. So we don't have funds like other people do. All of our money is raised in a shareholder capital into our corporate. Okay. When you have a fund, you have a general partner, a limited partner, the limited partner puts in the funds. You make money on a fee basis, right? So you make fees on on the capital that you manage, plus you make carry, which is a percentage of the profits, right, that you've created. 
all of our money goes into our our shareholdings. We invest in in projects, right? Those projects generate cash flow. We are able to pay a dividend yield to our investors. And the stock price goes up based on whether we do a good job of investing in the right mix of projects, right? Not just one project, right? We don't really get rewarded for having a 10x return on on investment. We get rewarded by every single one of our projects performing. And then looking across all of our portfolio and saying, are we actually protected from any one risk, right? So if natural gas prices go to $10 a million BTU, is our portfolio protected by that? If oil prices go down to 40 bucks, are we protected by that? If there's a fire at one of our locations, like do we have enough diversification, right? That's what a debt holder would look at and say, hey, you know, these guys are fully diversified. We think that they're an investment grade off taker and we're going to give them debt at 2.4% interest because they're just so low risk, right? And so that's, because we're a corporation, people look at the entirety of our corporation and look at how reasonable it is that we're going to be in business for the long term, which over the last seven years has improved every year to the point where now we have access to the largest infrastructure investors and debt providers in the world. In terms of our portfolio, we have, I think, about $1.5 billion worth of assets operating on our balance sheet, and we're adding assets at a pretty fast clip onto our balance sheet. But more importantly, I'd say is that those assets are in the leading on the leading edge of sustainability, right? So they're anaerobic digesters, or organic waste, right? We're participating in the low carbon fuel standard program in California, electric buses. And so when you think about all of the biggest growth areas, we're on the leading edge of those growth areas. And a lot of the areas that we've invested in have now become commonplace. Right. So, like, we were one of the first big investors in community solar. Well, now everyone's doing community solar. And so, the higher returns that we made on our first projects are now capable of taking on a lot cheaper debt than we originally thought they would. And so, our returns on those assets are higher than, than we originally expected they could be because the broader marketplace has fully normalized those assets to the point where they are viewed as fully bankable by the rest of the marketplace. So what are the emerging areas of opportunity that that you see for the company? Are are there any sectors that you're particularly bullish on? Well, emerging is a very difficult term for us, right? Because emerging isn't ever referring to technology, right? Because we never invest in technology risk. So when we say emerging, what we mean is regulatory affairs, right? Do governments actually want to support the rollout of this technology? So in our anaerobic digester business, You've got many states now that have banned food waste from landfills, right? That's regulatory support. You separately are looking for credible entrepreneurs, right? Do you have people who actually can, through the sheer force of their will, get a lot of people to start deploying the technologies, which is what we have now in the fuel cell space, right? I mean, the group over at Plug Power and the group over at Bloom Energy and others have really, through the sheer force of their willpower, figured out how to get people to deploy this technology at billion-dollar scale. Yeah. Well, that gets to a question I wanted to ask you about kind of what you look for in a company that I would imagine you have a steady stream of opportunities coming in to generate. When you're evaluating these opportunities, what are you looking for in terms of the company, their size, their product category, the team? Obviously, the financial returns and the opportunity financially is a, is a critical factor, but what else are you looking for? Yeah, it's a great question. We generally look for 
four things to be in place, right? One is that the technology cannot be risky. It has to be fully proven. We do not take technology risk. The second thing is that it has to have an offtake agreement, which means there has to be a customer who wants the services so badly that they're willing to contract for it, right? That it's not just merchant and, you know, you live by the merchant curves and die by the merchant curves. Like one example of this is, for instance, in the recycling space where the Chinese have stopped buying or taking all of our recyclables and people are like have recyclables stacked up for days in major cities around the United States. The problem with most of those technologies is that there's no one who actually wants to buy the offtake on those recyclables. They're like, well, there's a commodity curve over here. If it's up, it's up. If it's down, it's down. But the problem is when you look at paper, for instance, in that commodity curve, it has fluctuated from $10 a ton to $100 a ton or $200 a ton. We can't take that kind of technology, the commodity curve risk, right? So someone has to step in and actually say, we're going to buy it for a fixed 80 bucks a ton. And if it goes up, we'll make money. If it goes down, we'll lose money on that. The third is we need feedstock. So in recycling, I mean, for solar and wind, it's easy, right? The sun is free, the wind is free. But for a lot of places, you actually have to pay for feedstock or you get paid for feedstock, like food waste or recycling or other things, right? And so we need to make sure that the feedstock agreements are are tight. And the fourth and most important that people gloss over is we need somebody with an operating history that can actually operate the assets. Like we don't get paid back our capital for like six or seven years on most of these assets, right? Sometimes 10 years. So we need to know that someone can come down and service it and maintain it because the customer is clearly not going to pay for it if it doesn't work. So those are the four major criteria. And we talk to 600 plus entrepreneurs a year on purpose to make sure that we're educating them and mentoring them in ways that my book, frankly, hasn't accomplished. Because for Generate Capital, it matters to us that the pipeline is really full. And the pipeline won't be full unless we work with entrepreneurs four years before they need us to give them good advice on how to do things. But ultimately, the last piece that we look for is scale. If we put out $50 million, it doesn't make an asset class bankable. We really need to be at $500 million of total asset value over time. That's what attracts the big money to come in with lower costs of capital. Yeah. Well, boy, that's a pretty tight formula. Proven technology, customer in place, known supply of feedstock, solid operating history, and the ability to scale certainly would would explain why you guys have been as successful as you have. When you reflect on what you've accomplished at Generate over the last seven years, what what would you say is maybe your, your greatest success story? And what's the thing you thought was going to be a big hit that didn't quite pan out? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, clearly, Plug Power has been one of our biggest hits. I mean, we didn't own any stock, so we didn't get any benefit from the increase in the stock price. But the fact that we bet on the company when its market cap was less than 200 million, right? And knew that their technology was really ready for prime time and then got that validation from the marketplace broadly, you know, just warms our heart, right? And with the fact that we played a tiny part of it was fantastic, right? And so, and we've had a couple of those stories, including STEM, which is now going public with a SPAC and BYD with their electric buses. And there's a couple of really good stories there where we have went in early and took a chance on a team and was really able to help them get to the next level of impact. And that really warms our heart. I'd say, you know, where we've had disappointments, my sense is they're temporary. So like, for instance, in the solar hot water space, 
it just wasn't ready for prime time. None of the entrepreneurs were really ready for prime time. The technology really wasn't enough to write home about. Natural gas was super cheap, and so no one really needs to put in solar thermal. So that was a bit of a bust, but I don't think it's going to be a bust forever. I think at some point it'll come back around. And I would say even on the energy efficiency front, we found that the ability to fund energy efficiency at scale has found challenges. And so we continue to try to figure out exactly how to make that work. I mean, it clearly works already in the ESCO market at $8 billion a year. But the next generation of folks who need our support, we haven't really found the trick to figuring out how to unlock it yet. Yeah. You know, you mentioned SPACs and the past month, it's been kind of a SPAC a day or sometimes two SPACs a day. It seems like people like Chamath Palapatia is jumping into one every day. There's another EV SPAC announced every day. What's your take on what's happening with SPACs? Are they good for fueling growth in clean energy? Are they not good for growth? Do you envision Generate Capital doing a SPAC? Well, I mean, we're blessed by having very strong private investors, so we don't have a need for capital that requires a SPAC. I think that in general, SPACs are good for companies who are frankly not really IPO ready, but want to do a funding event using the public markets and, you know, then can grow into becoming IPO ready. It sort of bypasses the S1 process that you normally have to do to, with the Securities and Exchange Commission. I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with SPACs. It's great. I mean, there's a lot of extraordinary companies who've been, sorry, investors that are now involved in SPACs. So it's not just the small time folks that were involved before. And look, having liquidity in the market is creating a bubble. It is obvious that our sector is in bubble territory, but ultimately bubbles mean that a lot more things get funded. And some of those things are going to fail, just like what happened in the 90s with the internet, boom. But in the end, what will end up happening is that out of the wreckage, because after a boom does come a bust, you will have strong companies that continue to maintain their strong fundamentals and maybe their stock price will go down for a little bit. But like I think that generally speaking, the sector is getting a lot of love because you've got a favorable administration and people believe that we're headed towards a trillion dollars a year of deployment. Oh, I think it's it's great that you just brought that up because this uh, this morning on CNBC, Andrew asked Larry Fink directly, are we in bubble territory around ESG? And Fink's view was we're not because there's so much demand fueling this that it's not like the 90s. I was dying for Andrew to say, Andrew, ask him about the 90s corollary. You know, is this the late 90s internet where the amount of money chasing opportunities far exceeded the proper timing? And now out of the rubble emerged Amazon and lots of lots of majors. So it was interesting to hear you draw that, draw that comparison. Yeah, I think if you would have looked at all of the 90s, and you were to own the NASDAQ, right? If you bought the NASDAQ, whatever it is, QQQ in, in 1996, and held it all, to, all the way to today, I think you'd make a fantastic rate of return. Even with the crash in the 90s and then the growth back up, right? And so our sector is going to do fine. Individual players will go bankrupt, and some of them will be around and some of them won't be. As a sector, our sector is going to be fine because there is fundamental demand there. So what's next for Generate Capital? You guys have done amazing things in the seven years since you've launched. What's next for the company? Well, what's next for the company is more of the same, right? I mean, McKinsey, the International Energy Agency, right? You name it, deep decarbonization pathways, 
their project drawdown. There's like so many groups who've identified exactly how we're going to decarbonize our economy by 2050. In every one of those reports, there's 60 technologies that still haven't made it out of the millions phase. And so if, if you haven't made it out of the millions phase, well, then you can't, you need our help. You need generates help to get to the billions phase, right? And then once you make it to the billions phase, then you need all of our collective help to get to the trillion stage, right? And so that's what generates going to do. And it's going to be busy doing it for a hundred years. Yeah. So how much of your activity is outside of North America? The vast majority of our activity is in North America. In fact, I would say pretty much all of our activities in North America. I think recently started looking at Europe and their Green Deal and, and some other places and countries. But, but in general, the amount of work that we have in North America is just piling up. It's like there's so much stuff to do here that I don't foresee us desperately needing all these other geographies to grow, right? The, re the reason we would go into these other geographies is because they're missing a voice like us to actually help mature technologies get a chance to go from millions to billions. Okay. So you could be busy for a while just, just taking care of business in North America. Thank you for that. I appreciate the insights and point of view from the perspective of Generate Capital. Let's talk a little bit about the industry. In, in your book, one of the things you reference is that all energy solutions are local. And we just completed some research that we did in partnership with NRG that said that says large customers, they really want to control their own destiny. They want to control their supply and their use of energy. And as a result, plans to deploy distributed energy resources are really accelerating. And I think that trend proves the, your, your premise that all energy solutions are local. What's your view on where DERs are headed with, with large power customers? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say that we should start from a slightly different place, which is that you know, basically the Trump phenomenon and the Bernie Sanders phenomenon are actually really close together. They do it for different reasons, but ultimately, I think manufacturing things locally matters to a big percentage of the population, right? It's the same trend behind Brexit. But also, resiliency locally really matters. Like, I could show you a bunch of analysis that shows that a solar farm in Arizona with, a, with an ultra-high, you know, sort of transmission line, DC transmission line, from Arizona to New York City is the cheapest way to do solar power. But the people in New York want solar power locally. They don't want it from Arizona. And when, you know, a tree falls in Ohio and all of the transmission lines go down because of some sort of interruption and New York City goes dark, which happened like what, in 2003 or 2002, people would be like, why the hell are we getting our power from Arizona? And so folks want to get their services locally, whether it's wastewater treatment plant services or whether it's manufacturing or whether it's electricity production and microgrids and all that stuff. So that phenomenon crosses party lines. It's Democrats and Republicans who want that sense of security that occurs locally, right? And corporations see that as resiliency in their own planning. Now, the concept of DERs is not a, is not a technology and resiliency concept. The concept of DERs is a compensation concept. Right. So now the question is, once you've decided that you're going to move to this local framework, the question is, how does the grid pay you on a daily basis for having all this resiliency? Right. Because right now you're just paying for it for yourself because, you know, just in case something happens, you want to make sure you have backup. But in fact, 
a lot of it's not like diesel generation where you have to turn on the diesel and it costs you 60 cents a kilowatt hour to make the power. So you're not going to really turn it on every day. In this stuff, once you put a battery in or you put a flexible load in or you put in something else that allows you to have DERs, you know, which is distributed energy resources. Well, now you actually could provide a grid service every day, right? Your inverter can help with voltage support. You can help with all sorts of things. And so then how does the grid pay you for those services. And there's been blockchain things that have gotten involved because people want to figure out how to pay people only a dollar a day or whatever it is that their things are, are providing services for. And then you've got the first quarter 2222, which is saying, hey, you know, all of you guys must work this out because we've got to figure this out. And so I think it's largely coming together, but I think there are two different concepts. The one is why are people so insistent on resiliency and local solutions, which I think there's an answer for. And the other question is, how do you compensate people for all this excess flexibility capacity that they currently are not offering to the grid because they're not getting paid to do so? Yeah, that's really interesting because it's demand response has really grown as of late because of its ability to figure out that compensation issue. It's interesting to think about how other DERs if in fact they could get that piece figured out, will be even more, more viable. So you were at BP in the late 90s when they were looking at solar very, very early on. Big oil is currently all over renewables on a global basis. What's your take on the fact that most of big oil, not all of big oil, has kind of woken up to the fact that renewables really are the future and they've got to figure out how they're going to play? Well, remember that this is not a new insight, right? Sir Mark Moody Stewart and Lord John Brown had also had this insight back in the 2003 to 2005 range. They were then replaced unceremoniously by new CEOs who were back to basics and basically thought that they could ride this thing out until their tenure as CEO ended and their <laughs> stock price you know, would give them heavy compensation and they'd move on. Now, I think their stock is in free fall and to the point where some of these large behemoth energy companies are small enough that a private equity firm like KKR or TPG could buy them. And so they're saying, well, wow, like the markets really don't value our current trajectory. We're going to have to create a new trajectory. Otherwise, our stock price is not going to go up. Now, it's not easy to change the culture of these kinds of companies. And so we'll see whether they get there or not. But it's good to see that they're trying with gusto because that's what it's going to take to get us to a trillion dollars a year of deployment. So Shell Sky scenario that they published a couple of years ago, I, I thought kind of laid out a pretty interesting vision. What's your take on, of all the big oil companies, who do you think kind of gets it Well, and has the best chance of successfully navigating the transition? Well, it's hard to answer that question because I think they all get it. I think the the big challenge is basically what are the chances that they're going to make the transition? And I think history is not kind in that respect. I mean, pretty much none of the wood companies of the 1800s made the transition to coal. And very few of the coal companies made any transition to oil and gas. And I think very few of the oil and gas companies are going to make the transition to clean energy. It's just the nature of things. People's cultures are just so inflexible that no matter how much you pay McKinsey or whoever it is to give you advice, it's just really hard to follow because your instincts are, I really want to do more oil, like not abandon all of that stuff and then take the the expertise that we have and move it to geothermal. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like some surely some classic case studies will be will be written. 
it introduces the notion of incumbents and their ability to navigate change. Let's let's talk a little about utilities. Utilities were by and large resistant to the transition, I believe, until 2015 when MGM paid that $870 million check to sever ties with NV Energy. I think that got the industry's attention and gradually the utility industries come along. You now see more and more utilities ratcheting up renewables in their integrated resource plans. How do you see utilities responding to the unrelenting consumer demand for renewables and DERs? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say like, remember, Nextera is now the most valuable energy company on the stock exchange, but not because of their utility, right? It's not like Florida Power and Light is the model of an open marketplace. And it's because of the unregulated subsidiary at Nextera that owns a lot of solar and wind farms and other people's utility territories that they're worth that much money, right? And so I think utility companies have a natural belief that they are the guardians of reliable electricity and that they know best how to get things done, and they largely do. So I understand why they think that. But I do think that that customers are getting smart about what they can do. And, you know, the MGM payment, I think, was $86.9 million to NV Energy to get out of the contract. But but it was still a big check at the time, and NV Energy had thrown out that number as an impossibly high number. And they were shocked that MGM actually didn't negotiate it, but just paid it. So I totally agree with you about that moment sending shockwaves through the system. And I think the regulators have generally allowed for more customer empowerment, which is, again, a similar trend to what I was saying between the Trump and Bernie positions, right? Which is a lot of Republicans are like, look, if somebody wants to generate their own power, they have the God-given right to generate their own power. And the utility company can't tell them what they can and can't do as long as it's safely interconnected using safety mechanisms that are predetermined by IEEE or other people. So I think you see a lot of synergies between the folks who believe in the power of the individual and the folks who believe in the power of technology to change our future. Thank you, by the way, for correcting my data point. That was, <laughs> I just added a zero, Jigger. That's all I did. It was a 87 million and not 870 million. It had a big impact nonetheless. So utilities and you referenced regulation earlier. Let's talk a little bit about kind of where things are headed and the impact that government regulation can play. Does federal policy really matter The business continued to grow with an administration that did not support renewables or clean energy. What moves can the Biden administration make that can really have a a material impact on things? Well, this is the Victor Hugo quote, which I don't think is actually him, but lots of other people said it. But sometimes like a great idea is time has come, right? And I think that clearly the macro forces behind clean energy are unstoppable and will continue apace. I do think that a presidential administration can actually accelerate things by forcing people to pay attention and to give it the benefit of the doubt. Remember, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of entities that have signed that we are still in pledge after Trump took us out of the Paris Agreement who haven't done anything, right? There are hundreds of thousands of people, right, from university presidents to mayors who've signed this pledge, who haven't put solar on rooftops, who haven't done deep energy efficiency retrofits in their buildings, who haven't moved to electric vehicles, who haven't done the things that they were supposed to do when they signed the pledge. 
And so having a Biden administration that's going to come in and say, hey, you guys actually now have to do all the things you promised to do. You can't just wait out the clock is important. And here's all the technical assistance that you need to help you through this process, because we understand that you probably just don't have all of the skill set within your jurisdiction or your city to be able to put it all out there. And so we'll help you with that, right? And so that is where I think they can be helpful is actually creating the the atmosphere of, hey, you know, this is really happening. Like, this is a safe space for you to jump on the train. Yeah. So it's interesting, like incentives versus mandates, I guess you really need both, right? There are some people that aren't going to move until they have to. It's not about whether they have to. I think that the mandates are misunderstood. The reason mandates are so important is it protects investors, right? Once a mandate comes in, if I'm making a 25-year investment, I don't want to rely on the good graces of the parties around the table to make my contract bankable for the next 25 years. I would really like to see a mandate in place that forces them to honor the contract legislatively. That makes sense in that context because people around the table change and you don't want risk associated with that long-term investment to be subject to that. Jigger, this has been great. We really have to spend some time talking about you, man, because you're obviously a very interesting person and would like to get a chance to really explore how you think and kind of what makes you tick. So you've had this great career, which is, I guess you could say you're just getting started. How has your career in the energy space evolved and what are some of the things you're most proud of to date? I sometimes feel like I've had this extraordinary career and at other times I feel like I'm sort of Forrest Gump going from one trend to the next <laughs> trend, you know, like, and I say that with, with the utmost respect for, for Forrest Gump. I mean, I, I think in general, there's a great book called Fooled by Randomness by Nassib Talib Nichols. And like, he basically correctly says that sometimes we take credit for things that would have happened anyway, right? That it was a macro trend occurring. And, you know, we sort of take credit for things that would have happened anyway. And that we, and the worst part of it is that we actually don't know the difference. Like it's one thing to take credit for things just because it self-aggrandizes your accomplishments. It's another thing to actually fool yourself and then you make bad decisions in the future. So I, I try to keep a level head about these things. I mean, a lot of these things would have happened with or without me. And so I don't know that I had a huge role to play in making them happen. I do think that I have always really believed in the power of these technologies and in the power of the people that I've had the good fortune to call my colleagues. And we've been able to make things happen that wouldn't have happened on the time scale that they happened on. And from for that perspective, I'm quite proud, right? I mean, when it, whether it's Sun Edison, which I think is more obvious with the PPA, but even the Carbon War Room, we were the ones who rebranded the entire global movement from shared sacrifice to greatest wealth creation opportunity of our generation and got Richard Branson to say it out of his mouth such that 225 papers would cover it every single time he said it, right? And then we got over 60 heads of state to say it before the Paris Agreement, right? And so I'm not suggesting that John Kerry and all those folks didn't deserve a huge amount of credit for negotiating the Paris Agreement. But remember that like, that, that wouldn't have happened if we weren't blatantly and blasphemously saying what we did in 2010 and 2011 when everyone told us to keep our mouths shut. 
right? And we didn't, right? And then we also obviously proved it through our shipping work and airline work and other work that we did. But it was not, it was a heavily contested thing. People wanted us to use the word shared prosperity instead of shared wealth creation. And we were like, no, like, I mean, the way change makers operate is wealth creation. I mean, the way Richard Branson worked was wealth creation. And so I think that was something that we did that was really big. And then with, the, with Generate Capital, there were a lot of people at family office stage that were doing what we were doing. There were a lot of people with 50 million bucks investing to make you know very large returns in this space and then re-rating their assets and making even higher returns. But nobody was really doing it institutional scale, which is where Generate Capital is, has fit in, right? And now that we've got money from Oz Super and QIC and AP2 and some of these really big investors, we've been able to prove to people that this is actually an asset class that can be well-managed, that you can actually do this the right way with discipline and a carefulness that I think people just thought you couldn't do, that this was all shooting from the hip. And that matters because I think there are hundreds of other people that are going to be able to raise funds and vehicles and, and C-Corps that copy our structure as a result of our success. What's been your biggest career challenge? So I don't know that I've had significant challenges, no more than the next person. I think that whenever you're making change at this scale, you always have big roadblocks in your way. And I think the attitude of saying, look, this will be overcome. We will figure out a way to get to the other side. This is a macro theme that will play itself out. And we just have to keep working the problem until it gets solved, I think is one that has served me well throughout my entire career. I think that in general, it's about getting a very large group of people to believe in what you're doing and realizing the old Chinese proverb, which is that that if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. And one of the things that I've done is really focus on going together and bringing people along. And it is so hard. It is really hard because you think that you can go faster. You really think you can. But like, for instance, UPS, I got UPS to do solar on the rooftop. It took me four years to get that done. And I never gave up. Do I think that that was a significant roadblock? No. I had one of my competitors at Sun Edison say that a power purchase agreement was illegal. Was that a roadblock? Sure. But we just worked the problem until we proved to them that it wasn't. Everything that I've done has been hard, but I've been able to do it because I've just had colleagues that were tons smarter than I was, and we were all dedicated to the same effort, and we never took the roadblock seriously. We just realized that when you're changing things at trillion dollar scale, which is what we're really doing in infrastructure, you expect oversight, right? You expect people who are going to question what you're doing because trillions of dollars are at stake. And you don't take it personally. You don't get defensive. You just keep working the problem. And I think that that's something that, that I've learned early on, and it's an attitude that served me well. Yeah. In a word, determination. So who's had the most influence on you in your career, Jigger? Oh my, so many people. <laughs> Early on, there's a group of investors in North Carolina who passed on investing in Sun Edison, but I met a guy named Richard Harkrader there, and he was just such a huge inspiration. Before that, at BP Solar, Chris Mottershead and Craig Coburn and Chris O'Brien, my old boss, were huge influences in my life. The first tax equity investor in, in Sun Edison was Mike Miller. Mike has been a lifelong friend and mentor. I remember like I used to walk to my office at Greenpeace because we were renting space from there, and I would talk to him literally every morning for 45 minutes. It was, it was amazing. 
Like after that, the board members at Generate Capital have just been extraordinary. Richard Branson turned out to be an extraordinary mentor. I mean, not that he wouldn't have been, but the fact that he made time for me and made time to give me that that kind of guidance and direction was, you know, really inspiring. Jose Maria Figueres, the former president of Costa Rica, is my board chair. And I mean, just watching him work was just a privilege, right? And so I've had so many mentors over the years, and they've all meant something different to me and taught me something different. But what I think what they all taught me in the end was the power that a single individual has to make change in the universe, not through their own actions, but through inspiring other people who actually want to pursue the same course, but may not feel comfortable pursuing it without someone else alongside them for the ride, right? And that I've seen over and over again across all my mentors, and and it's been an extraordinary journey. And as you noted, we're just getting started. That's great, Jigger. You've certainly been blessed. Who do you admire most? Oh, my. I mean, I admire so many people, right? I mean, I, I have to say, like, the people that I admire are the people who do things when it's not easy to do. I mean, like Greta Thunberg. Lord almighty, how inspiring that is, right? I mean, you just think about a little girl who did things by herself for a year before people caught on. It brings tears to your eyes, really, right? I mean, but even like the Black Lives Matter movement and what and what they've, they've done to bring this to the forefront, right? But many of the folks who are working on Native American issues and figuring out how to get money out the door to these populations and helping to create that shared prosperity on the deployment of solar and wind farms. When you think about like, you know, one of my best friends in the world is Phil Radford who ran Greenpeace. And, you know, those people bring me huge amounts of inspiration, right? Like they stood up to Facebook and Apple and all those guys. The reason that those guys are doing corporate PPAs today is because of Greenpeace, right? And we all say, oh yeah, no, they're just doing it for the right reasons. No, they're doing it because Greenpeace forced them to take this to the C-suite. And the C-suite said, yeah, you're right. We probably should do something like this. And so I have to say, whether it's governors like Jay Inslee, who frankly remade the entire presidential race through reports and Maggie Thomas, who wrote them all. I mean, there are just so many people who inspire me, but the, the common theme is that they they tried, right? They made that effort and they did it in the face of withering criticism. Right, withering criticism. There are a lot of people who say, Why would you possibly do that at this moment in time? Why wouldn't you just go along and get along? Why don't you just take the, why don't you just facilitate a conversation? Why don't we have 20 people just go to the Keystone Center or the Aspen Institute and actually just talk it out? Right. And those people are inspirational too. I mean, they do great work, but it's the catalyst on this side that forces everyone to the table that make those things successful. And I find it shocking when people don't respect the value of that catalyst. I mean, the Sunrise Movement's the same. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, as an early Congresswoman, for her to go and protest in Nancy Pelosi's office, she could have been shunned for life. That could have been the end of her career. And the fact that it actually like didn't end her career, that was not a foreseeable outcome. The likely outcome was that she would basically be pummeled in the next primary by Nancy Pelosi and a huge amount of money. And she didn't get that reaction, right? So, I mean, those are the people who inspire me. Wow. So many of those character traits that you reference, kind of determination, 
driven by a sense of purpose, uh, ability to tackle obstacles are really inspiring. And I think just great lessons and things to follow for all of our listeners. It kind of ties into what I wanted to ask you next, Jigger, which is what do you think makes for a successful entrepreneur? You've been an entrepreneur, you know lots of entrepreneurs, you're evaluating entrepreneurs every day at Generate Capital. What do you think makes for a, a successful entrepreneur? So I, de- I definitely don't think you can be a successful entrepreneur unless you have an internal drive to succeed, right? I mean, you have to have a level of grit and hustle and, and a little bit of arrogance to be able to do this. But then the other part of it that it needs to be married with, which I find amazingly missing from most entrepreneurs I meet, is an extraordinary amount of humility around how hard what they're doing is and how important it is to really listen to the people who are giving you advice. I mean, frankly, the most inspirational thing I've seen on this recently has been President Biden. He was being assaulted on stage during those Democratic debates, and he didn't give it back. After he won the primary, he combined forces with Bernie Sanders and had that reconciliation process. And pretty much everyone I know that was a part of it said that they were heard and people listened to them. Now, Biden wasn't a wallflower. He didn't take most of their ideas. He's like, some of them I share, some of them I don't. You didn't convince me. But as an entrepreneur, I have to say, like, my biggest strength came from people who were my biggest detractors. Folks who like basically just said, what, he, what you're doing is terrible. I don't think I understand it. It's never going to work. And I genuinely tried to listen to what they had to say to see whether there was some grain of truth in what they were saying and whether that actually meant that I needed to make a fundamental change to my business model. So the first part is needed, right? If you don't have that first part, and it's, it's a privilege, let's be honest, right? If you're a single mom who only has two weeks of savings in your bank account, it's hard to take those kinds of risks. I totally get it, right? Or if you have you know, a person of color who has one-tenth the amount of like net worth, right, which most African-American families have statistically, it's hard to take those kinds of risks. I get that, right? But that's the first part of it, right? And then the second part of it, though, I find is, it, is shocking how, how lacking it is in a lot of the entrepreneurs I meet. They have the arrogance part, but they don't actually have <laughs> the humility part around, you know, like recognizing that there's actually a lot that their advisors and that their investors and others could teach them. And they're not open-minded to learning. Yeah. How does the arrogance part and the humility part work in, in harmony? I guess that's a real trick, but... Very, very true words. But I think there's, you have to have a certain element of confidence to be open to the fact that you may not be right and that there may be a better idea. But that humility piece, I I think, is key. This has nothing to do with your personal beliefs, but I have to ask you you have 709,428 followers on LinkedIn, and you're the top energy voice on that platform. How the hell do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) You go all in on the platform before it became cool to do so. Okay. I mean, I I hired people at Sun Edison in 2006 off of LinkedIn, right? That's how long I've been on LinkedIn. And when I launched my book, LinkedIn was just doing this whole influencer follower thing. 
And so they chose me as one of the main voices through a connection that I, I had. And they promoted my posts. And, you know, I posted every other week as they asked me to do and all those things. And, you know, it was a great experience. I'm certainly not one of those performance artists that are on YouTube or or Twitter or other places. Like, that's just not my personality. But I am somebody who highlights disagreements. And if you read the comment section of my posts, uh, there's a lot of people who disagree with me. And I value that because I believe that spirited discourse is something that is super important for all of us. Like we are making trillion dollar decisions here and you cannot make trillion dollar decisions without being open to feedback and criticism because it's just, it's too important. Like you just can't, you can't sit there and say, I've got all the answers just because my model at Princeton or my model at, you know, in Colorado or my model here, or my model there says so, right? You got to be open to really spirited debate. Well, you're clearly a prolific writer on LinkedIn. I enjoy your posts. And I must say, your posts do prompt robust conversation very often. But 709,000, <laughs> oh my God, that's incredible. So, Jigger, one of the things that hit me in your book, and it's interspersed throughout the book, as has been interspersed throughout the conversation, you reference karma, you reference Hindu mantras, you reference the serenity prayer. Would you consider yourself a person of faith? And what role has faith played in your career? Oh, yeah. No, I'm a spiritual person, right? I mean, I, I don't really participate in all the religious dogma where you're, you know, sort of doing all the ceremonial stuff every week. But I'm, I'm deeply spiritual for a couple of reasons. I think one is that it is so deeply important to your mental sanity to have a framework that you respect. I mean, I know hundreds at this point of scientists within the climate change space, and they are almost by definition not spiritual. And they are beside themselves, right? They are lashing out at people because we are not winning the climate war. As you know, right, we're more likely to be on track to being an unlivable planet than we are to solving this crisis, and it eats them up inside in ways that are actually affecting their mental sanity and the sanity of those around them. And the fact that I actually have this belief in a higher power, even though I have no tangible reasons to believe in a higher power, gives me a level of calm that I frankly think that I am so desperate in my life, life to have. Otherwise, I think I would just go crazy, right? So I think that's one piece of it. But the other piece of it is I, I really do believe that all of this success that some of us get is in part random. There are so many people who have worked just as hard as I have, if not more hard than I have, and have had less to show for that effort. And you have to be able to put that into some sort of framework. And this framework helps me. It really helps me understand that, but for, how does that phrase go? But for the grace of God, go I, right? And, and there's just so many people who, you know, are well-educated, came from the best backgrounds, like had the right opportunities, but they just didn't go their way. And I just, it's shocking to me how many people don't really understand that. And it causes them to treat other people 
in such poor and bad ways. I mean, we, in our culture, have somehow led ourselves to believe that rich people are smarter than less successful people, monetarily. And that's shocking to me. I mean, you and I both know the vast majority of rich people I know are dumber than a doornail. <laughs> they got so damn lucky, but they get to espouse their beliefs like it's like they're the smartest person. They might be the smartest person on manipulating the media. They might be the smartest person on betting on natural gas futures. They might be the smartest person on figuring out computer code. But that doesn't make them smart on every other issue in, in the world. So I think my faith, you know, really gives me a perspective of how insignificant I am in the broader world that we live in, right? And the broader universe that we're a part of. Well, that kind of declaring your beliefs in the absence of a tangible reason to believe so is really, it's the essence of faith. And when you layer in that sense of gratitude that you've expressed, I find that faith and gratitude side by side are kind of common traits in people that have achieved great success. So thank you for your willingness to share your thoughts on such a such a personal topic, Jigger. You've already obviously had tremendous impact on the industry and you have experienced great success. What would you like to accomplish during the rest of your career, Jigger? Oh man, I have a long ways to go. <laughs> I mean, we're not we're not close to a trillion dollars of deployment per year, right? And we're certainly not close to figuring out how this acceleration of deployment, right, which is, you know, according to Larry Fink, $50 trillion by 2050, is going to help the folks who've been left behind in the New Deal, right? Remember, we it was a feature of the New Deal to, like, have redlining and not allow GIs who are African-American to access the GI Bill and all those things. That was a feature, you know, in a deal with the Southern Democrats. That should not be a feature of this revolution, Right. And I have a very large responsibility to play in making sure that now that we've proven the basic tenets that sustainability wins, that, that sustainability is actually a very good investment, a good risk adjusted rate of return. Now it is the responsibility of people like myself to make sure that it's a broader based win, that we actually can serve the communities that we, that we operate assets in, in a way that respects those communities, right? And frankly, I think many of us have been paddling so hard just to keep our head above water that we haven't paid attention to all these other issues, right? And so I got a lot of work to do. I mean, you know, we all have a lot of work to do. And I feel blessed that I'm in a situation where I can do that work. I look forward with great anticipation to continue to follow you and your great work and continuing our, our dialogue and friendship. Jigger, I can't thank you enough for joining me here today. This has been great. Your book was instrumental in the creation of Smart Energy Decisions. Your ongoing encouragement has been greatly appreciated. And thank you so much for being with me today to help celebrate our fifth anniversary of Smart Energy Decisions. For those listeners who haven't read it, needless to say, I highly suggest that you pick up a copy of Creating Climate Wealth. I will personally send a, a complimentary copy to the first 25 listeners who email me at john at smartenergydecisions.com. Just tell me you listen to the podcast and you'd like a copy of Jigger's book, and I'm happy to send that to you with my compliments. Thank you, John. Oh, Jigger, it's my pleasure.
It's a great book. And I think it's must reading for everyone that's passionate about the work that we're doing. To our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn about how you can become a part of the next edition of our Innovation Summit, which is taking place March 22nd to the 25th, visit our website, smartenergydecisions.com for details. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Jigger Shah in this podcast, on our website and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.